Well, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Matthew. It's great to see you all here today. As Ira was saying, um, today is our third week in our Big Questions series. Today's question is, how can anyone take the Bible literally? Uh, it's a good question, isn't it? How can anyone take the Bible literally? Now, let me start by reading a sentence from Dan Brown's timeless classic, uh, The Da Vinci Code, where the main character of Robert Langdon, sorry, I couldn't help that, uh, where Robert Langdon, uh, the main character, played by Tom Hanks in the movie, if that helps, uh, is speaking to Sophie about why it is that people believe in different religions. Um, he says this, Sophie, every faith in the world is based on fabrications. That's the definition of faith. Acceptance of that which we imagine to be true, that which we cannot prove. Now, I think Professor Langdon in that moment actually sums up and captures a very 21st century understanding about faith or belief. It's a matter of persuading yourself of something uh, that just, just persuading yourself by like just mental force that is true, even though there's no evidence whatsoever. Even in the face of lack of evidence, you persuade yourself that it's true. Now, I'm sure you've heard that kind of thinking before. Uh, have your friends ever said to you, or have you ever said to yourself, do I need to stop thinking in order to believe? Uh, isn't believing just a leap in the dark? Do you really read the Bible? How can anyone take the Bible literally? Now, that's the reaction that I get sometimes when I tell people that I want to live by what God says in the Bible. They say, you what? And the feeling in our world today is that if we want to live by the Bible, then we're actually doing something that's childish or unsophisticated. It's doing something that I ought to have grown out of. Surely, I can't be so naive as to take the Bible literally. I think that's what my friends mean when they say, sure, there's some good bits in the Bible... But isn't it just a mixture of myth and legends and poetry and rules that are out of date? Uh, to live by it, to take it seriously, that just seems, you know, so unreasonable. Yet, I'd like to take you to a section of the Bible that I think completely reverses that idea. Because in uh, the letter that Luke wrote, uh, the biography of Jesus' life that Luke wrote, what happens is we meet people who choose to follow the Lord Jesus. And they do so because they engage their brain and they assess the evidence and think about it and then make a decision about whether to follow Jesus based on that very rational and sensible line of things. Uh, so turn with me to, in the Bibles to Luke chapter 1. That's on page 1012 uh, in the Red Church Bibles. Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> and if we just find the first verse, which is the very beginning of the book, Luke chapter 1, follow along with me, please. And many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom, uh, so, sorry, by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seems good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty 
of the things you have been taught. So right there, right from the very beginning of Luke's record of Jesus' life, he makes a staggering claim. Because today, people tend to use the category of myth and legend for understanding what the Bible's saying. It's all just full of poetry and symbolism. Uh, it's not actually anything concrete. I've had people say to me, well, Luke thought he was writing history, but you know, over the years and the decades, as time rolled by, layers begin to be built up. Uh, the miracles got added in. Uh, and then, because the church wanted to sort of bolster its foundations in the world, uh, they bumped Jesus up from being a wise man to becoming God, the Son of God. So inspiring stories, yes, but you wouldn't want to live by them because it's just myth and legend. Stories layered one piece on top of the other. But if you went up to Luke and said that to him, he would be very surprised. He'd say, well, when you read the Bible, yes, you do need to be sensitive to the poetry and Psalms. And you've got to be aware of the symbolism in places like Genesis and Revelation but the basic character of the Bible is that it is historical. The basic character of the Bible is that it is events that happened. And it's very different from the world of myths and legends. Uh, so let's look at three reasons from those words at the opening of Luke's uh, Gospel to see why the myths and legends story does not work. Uh, first, the New Testament uh, is too early, too close to the events that happened in order to be legendary. You see, if we just think about some of the dates. Jesus, what date was he crucified in? 33 AD. And Luke doesn't mention any event in his record that comes after about 62 AD. So Luke is probably writing in the early 60s of the first century. And we can go back even earlier than that. Paul, who was one of... Uh, the apostles, in fact, the man who wrote that letter that Bron first read from, uh, Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, uh, right from the very beginning, he worshipped Jesus as God. It's not a later edition 400 years later. Uh, people from the very beginning are worshipping Jesus as God. Uh, you see, Paul was killed in the mid-60s. Uh, the first letter that he wrote about that we know of uh, was written in about 48 A.D., now, you might say, hang on, Matthew, that's still 15 years after uh, the events. Uh, but here's the thing. Paul became a Christian 14 years before he wrote that letter, in 34 AD. Jesus was crucified in 33 AD. And the point is, back in 34 AD, Paul didn't sit around saying, now, this story needs to be made better. We'll make Jesus into God. No, 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 he had been persecuting Christians trying to wipe them off the face of the earth because they were worshipping Jesus as God. Do you see the whole claim that Jesus wasn't worshipped as God until years later? That just doesn't fit with the evidence. It was right from the start. Jewish people who were brought up with one key idea, there is one God and you worship no one else, were worshipping Jesus as God right from the beginning because of the events of history. Now, what else can you do with a man who lived as Jesus lived? What else can you do with the miracles that Jesus did? What else can you do with the testimony that Jesus rose from the dead? Now, what do you do with him when all the evidence is there? Well, you worship 
him. And so the Bible is too early to be legend, but it's also too detailed to be legend. Uh, Just read one of the Gospels. If you read Luke's Gospel, uh, what you'll see is it's not set in the timeless realm of the gods. Uh, It's set in a very particular time and place. Luke's always saying where it happened, who the Roman governor of the area was at the time. He's writing in a style that historians would use. Uh, So if you look at verse 2, you see that he's saying he's gone to the sources. He's spoken to eyewitnesses. People who saw this happened, he's collected their testimony and put it together so that you and I can read it. And Luke does what historians always do in verse 4. He states his aim. He says, I want you to know the certainty of the things that happened. I want you to know that this happened. That's why I'm writing it down. And he gets all his social and political and geographical details right. Because he's not writing like someone who tells a story. He's writing like someone who records events of history. It's too detailed to be legendary. And then thirdly, uh, the Gospels are too honest to be legends. In the Gospels, uh, Peter, the leader of the church, uh, he's often presented as clueless. He's slow to understand. Uh, At other times, he's a coward. Uh, If you were writing a story in order to make the founders of the Christian church look good, uh, you wouldn't be writing about these men in this way. If you want Jesus out to make out Jesus as the king of the universe, why would you have him in the Garden of Gethsemane on the day before he died, sweating and worrying over whether he can go through with what he's about to do? It just doesn't look good. And if you're claiming that Jesus is God's son, then why would you take the hero of your story and then devote a quarter of it or a third of it to his death? Surely you want to major on other things that are much more positive. You don't want to major on his defeat, on his death. Because in the, in the Jewish world at that time, to be crucified meant that you were cursed by God. And in the Roman world, to be crucified, that's the most shameful death that you could possibly endure. If this is a legend developed to impress, then it is a particularly poor one. So, okay... It's not a legend, it's a book of history. So what? Uh, Why don't we look at what the Apostle Peter said. He's one of Jesus' closest uh, followers uh, and he uh, wrote down things about Jesus' life and death as well. So 2 Peter, chapter 1. Uh, Turn to your Bibles with me in that. It's on page 1204. 2 Peter, chapter 1, from verse 16. What does Peter make of all of this? And the one thing that he wants us to be crystal clear on, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter wants us to be crystal clear that the events that he's talking about, 
the life of Jesus and the significance of his death and resurrection, it's not a hoax. He's referring to the moment when he and two close friends stood on the mountainside with Jesus and saw Jesus reveal his glory. I can't believe the understatement of what he says there in verses 17 and 18. It's almost like he's English. This man, Jesus, revealed himself in dazzling brightness to fully be the eternal and glorious God. And Peter, with James and John, those two other men, they were eyewitnesses to this incredible event that back up everything that Jesus claimed about himself and his life and his purpose. And on top of this, Peter testifies that everything Jesus did and said happened in broad daylight. It's not tucked away in a corner, but it was there for everyone to see. That's the real point that Peter is making. No conspiracy behind writing the New Testament. Eyewitness details. We didn't follow cleverly invented stories, he says in verse 16. It's not as if Peter, this time, got together with a few of his friends, saw a guy with some leadership potential and gathered around him and said, this Jesus guy, he's got, he's got the goods. I think we can take it all the way with a new religion because this will mean that we'll become really rich and famous. What Peter is doing is he is simply acting upon what he has seen and heard Jesus do and say. Peter and many others saw Jesus do wonderful acts. They heard Jesus teach like no one else. They saw Jesus die and knew that it was fulfilling all of God's promises. And then they saw him alive again and they said, this changes everything. We have to tell people about this. And the remarkable thing is that we're not just talking about one eyewitness. We're talking about Peter and Matthew and John and the Apostle Paul and Jude, as well as many others who were closely associated with Jesus and their followers, like Mark and Luke and James, Jesus' own brother. They put pen to paper in response to what they had seen. So this is one thing that sets Christianity apart from the religions, other religions that claim to have like a, a special book. Uh, the New Testament is a product of multiple eyewitnesses. In contrast, the Quran, that's the product of one individual. Uh, Prophet Muhammad, just one man. And likewise, the Book of Mormon, it starts with one person, Joseph Smith. But in the New Testament, what do we have? Multiple eyewitnesses testifying to what they saw, agreeing to these events and their significance. The eyewitness nature of the New Testament ought to give us confidence in what we read in the Bible. Now, there's a second big reason Christians want to live by the Bible, and that's because it is a word from God. Now, that's to say that the Bible is not claiming to be a collection of human reflections, uh, but it is God's words from his very own mouth. So, for example, in the Old Testament, uh, many people might be familiar with the Ten Commandments. Uh, when Moses delivered those commandments, he didn't say, OK, everyone, gather around. Um, I've got some commandments. So far, we've managed to have agreement for five out of ten of them. Uh, we just need to nut out what the final ones are going to be. And he says, this is the word of God. 
And the Apostle Paul, writing the New Testament, says, All scripture is God-breathed. So the words that I breathe are not just about me. Uh, They're the words that actually have their origin in me. They're my words. They come from me. And Paul is claiming that the Bible is therefore not just words about God, but come from God. So let's look again at Peter's letter. Uh, Still in chapter 1, but this time looking from verse 19, where we see that Peter, the eyewitness of Jesus, is convinced that reading the Bible is something that will benefit us. Verse 19, he says, You will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. Uh, Now, darkness can be a very scary thing to experience. And until light illuminates, then fear well and truly reigns. Now, a few months ago, maybe six months ago or so, Belle and I are lying in bed and um, it's dark. And there is a very strange noise that comes from downstairs. It sounds like someone has basically uh, gotten a, like I don't know, a container full of coins and poured them out on the floor. And um, Belinda goes, "What was that?" And because I don't want to go downstairs because it's dark, I play it cool and I say, "I don't know." (laughs) Anyway, uh, eventually, sense winds out, and I am delegated to go downstairs and investigate. So what do I do? I turn on every single light as I go to give the criminals a little bit of warning that an extremely tough man is coming. Uh, And I make big stompy noises, and I go downstairs, uh, looking sort of carefully this way and that, because, you know, darkness, it's fear. I don't know what's down there. Anyway, I go into the um, kitchen, and... um, some thing that was on a shelf of my children had been teetering near the edge and the gremlins of house simply had knocked it off and those little sort of button trinkety things that my daughters collect endless amounts of uh, fell onto the floor and made the suspicious noise uh, that nearly wiped three years off my life. But the point I'm trying to make is when darkness reigns, there is fear. But when God's work, word speaks... Light is brought into the world. And when Peter says, here is your light, he is saying, open up this book because it is God's word to you and you will be comforted as to who you are and what God's plans are for this world. Open this book and find light for your path. Know how to respond to the one who has made you and who has sent his son to judge and call you to account. Open this book and know the love of your Saviour God. And why can we be so confident that the Bible is the source for knowing God? Well, even though the apostles wrote the New Testament and even though the prophets wrote the Old Testament, Peter says there is actually someone who stands behind all of them. Look at verse 20. Above all... You must understand that no prophecy of Scripture comes about by the prophet's own interpretation. For for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible is not just the words of wise people. They're words authored by God himself, by the Holy Spirit. This is what we mean when people talk about the Bible is God-breathed. 
or the Bible is inspired. You see, today when we say we're inspired to do something, we usually mean that we were prompted or energised to do something. I was inspired to take up painting. But the Bible, when it talks about it being inspired, it's referring to something a little bit better than that. When we say the Bible is inspired, we mean that it has come to us by the work and the influence of God's Holy Spirit. When Luke gathered up the evidence uh, to piece together for us the life of Jesus, it wasn't just a good bit of investigation by a learned fellow. It was the Holy Spirit who put that gospel together. And when Paul was locked up in prison and he wrote the letters to the Corinthians and to the Ephesians, when he wrote his letters to the young man Timothy, who was a church leader, it was the Holy Spirit right there in the cell with him that was working through his pen. And what does this mean for the Bible? It means the Bible isn't just the opinions of ancient men. It means that the Bible reveals the very mind of God. Who knows the mind of God better than God himself, 1 Corinthians 2 says. The Bible is God perfectly revealing himself to us. Now that's the second reason to engage with the Bible. It's a word from God. But what does that mean for us today? And that brings us to our third and final point. The Bible isn't just a book of ideas that you can take or leave. It's a word about someone. It's a word about Jesus. You see, the Bible is a history of God's unfolding plan for his world. It starts with his creation of the world and then it goes to show God acting in the world and in history as his plan to rescue people unfolds. Because right at the very start of human history, we see that we enter into the thickest and deepest problem you can possibly imagine. The good God who made us, we actually take his gift of life and relationship with him and we screw it up into a little ball and we chuck it in the bin. The Bible describes that as rebellion against him, sin. And so in the Old Testament, God works to reverse this problem. In the Old Testament, he calls together a people and he promises that through them, he will send someone who will rescue and reconcile the world to himself. That's why Luke, at the very beginning of his biography of Jesus' life, in chapter 1, verse 1, uses the word fulfilled. Many people, he says, have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. This story about Jesus, this history about him, it hasn't emerged out of the blue. The promises of the Old Testament that one day God would send a rescuer and when he comes, he's not going to be teaching new and different ideas What he's going to be doing is taking God's plan and fulfilling it, bringing it to its climax. And so the New Testament, it never sees Jesus as another teacher. Take him or leave him. It presents him as God come to the world to bring God's plan to its goal, to fulfill all of God's promises in the Old Testament. So let's turn to one last passage in the Bible, uh, to Luke chapter 24 which is on page 1048. Luke 24, starting at verse 44. 
Luke 24, verse 44. And then Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. You see, what Jesus is saying to his disciples is that the very heart of his mission, the very heart of all of God's plans, is him establishing a kingdom that will last for eternity, where he is both the ruler and the one through whom you gain access to that kingdom. And after his resurrection, when he tells his disciples that in him God has fulfilled all of his promises, Jesus is making that big claim. He's picking up on ideas from the Old Testament. In fact, he's picking up on some of the ideas from an Old Testament prophet called Isaiah, who promised the day that when God himself would come as rescuer, a rescuer who would be a light for all people, to pull people out from underneath God's judgment for sin and to open the eyes of the blind and to bring people out of darkness. And these days, uh, we talk about being in the dark, about not knowing what is going on. Uh, recently, I've enjoyed following the events surrounding uh, Brexit. It is possibly the best sitcom on television at the moment. Uh, failed deals... Failing and falling prime ministers, jittery stock markets, uh, lying to your queen, uh, having your decisions overturned by the high court. It doesn't get better than that. Uh, I am completely in the dark about how this will end. How will Brexit end? I don't know. But the Bible says it's even worse to be in the dark when it comes to God. The Bible says that because we've turned our backs on him and because we haven't lived with God at the centre of our lives, as we ought to have, uh, we are blind. We are in the dark with God. We're cut off and excluded from him. And the Bible's clear that whether we realise it or not, this is a terrible state to be in, to be cut off from God. It's terrible in this life, but it is especially terrible in the next Being in the dark with God is a terrible thing. But God promised through the prophets like Isaiah and right throughout the Old Testament that one day he would send someone who will be a light to the world and that he'd bring people out of the darkness. Are you starting to see how God prepared the ground for the rescuer to come? The one who would bring people out of the darkness with God and into the light so that we can know him. And when the Lord Jesus comes on the scene, he claims to be that light. And it is an enormous claim. He is the one who is claiming to fulfill all of God's promises, to help people to know God and to enjoy him forever. And so when Christ says that he's the ruler of an eternal kingdom, he's making that staggering claim, one that's sobering, for us, because we discover that we are in the dark with God. And it's a striking claim about himself because he claims to be God himself, the rescuer and the ruler of God's kingdom. 
Now, if you're familiar with this story and you say that you're um, a, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, then this won't be news to you, but it is deeply comforting. What we have set our lives upon is not a hoax. It's not a cleverly invented story. It is the very words of God, him speaking to us so that we might know the love of our Father in heaven. And today you might call yourself someone who is investigating or you might see yourself as someone who is looking into the Christian faith. Maybe you know people who are Christians. Perhaps they strike you as a little bit odd. But actually they are quite intelligent. You know them as rational. They're not naive. And yet they still chose to follow Christ. Now I want you to consider that. Perhaps your friends who are Christian, they, like so many before them, have been rational. They've simply examined the evidence about Jesus. And like many before them, they've become convinced that Jesus is the rescuer and ruler of an eternal kingdom. And so they've turned to him and trusted him. The Bible presents faith as putting our trust in someone who is reliable, with good reason. So let me ask you, have you, as an adult, ever engaged with the evidence in the Bible for yourself? There's evidence. Luke, in his gospel, brings together all of the eyewitness testimony that he could lay his hands on and then he puts it in a clear order so that you can see Jesus as he really is. Luke's gospel is a very interesting and incredibly good read. Uh, There's in fact three copies of Luke's gospel uh, on the little glass cabinet as you head out of church. Take one today and read it this week. Why not ask a friend who brought you here or Ire, who's leading church, or me, to read through it with you. For me, reading the Bible is the highlight of the week when I get to meet up with someone and open it with them. Make the most of that opportunity. Look at Jesus' teaching for yourself. See his miracles. See how his actions fulfilled all of God's promises in the Old Testament. See that his resurrection really did happen and was witnessed by hundreds of people. Let me encourage you to take that opportunity. Please make your verdict about Jesus that's one that is based on looking at the evidence because there you will see he is not just a wise man, he's not a hoax, but that he is the Lord of the universe who you need to do business with. Now, let's finish by praying to the one who speaks to us in the Bible. Um, Father, we know that the Apostle Peter said to us that he and we do not follow cleverly invented stories when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Loving Father, we thank you that you don't call us to believe in Jesus without evidence. Thank you for sending him into the world so that we can know you and know what you are like. Father, we ask that you would save us from any assumptions that mean that we will not examine the evidence 
for the life of Jesus. Please humble us and open our minds so that we can be genuinely open-minded and look at the evidence and find the person that you are pointing to in the pages of the Bible. And, Father, for those who know you this morning, please help us to be truly thankful and to seek after you more and more, knowing that your word is sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. And, Father, we ask that you would work through us so that we might share the good news that we have with those around us. And we ask for all of this through our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.